Welcome to the Told You So podcast. I'm Brink. And I'm Carla. And today we're going to be talking about surveillance. Uh, what has it been in the past? What is it now? And why does it matter in this current moment? Yeah, folks, I guess uh, Big Bad Brother is watching. And Brink's laughing because uh, I feel like these days we actually have to throw in the term bad. I'm not sure that people know that, you know, Big Brother is, like, not a good thing. Yeah, not something to aspire to. I don't know. I think that it's still still a pretty common symbol or pretty common image that people talk about in terms of, uh, you know, 1984 is a popular book. There's the... Uh, bumper sticker that says make 1984 fiction again that I've seen several times. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think uh, in terms of Big Brother, in terms of surveillance uh, and the the vision that Orwell had of a surveillance state, um, kind of the creepiest element of that being the whole telescreen idea where it's a TV that watches you. Uh, which, which is uh, <laughs> a like reality today. I know. You not, know. I mean, our laptops do it. Our TVs do it. Our fire sticks do it. Well, our Alexa does than, it. Sorry for anything. everyone whose Alexa <laughs> just switched on. <laughs> well, right. And more than anything else, also our, our, our smartphones. Uh, there are these devices that uh, have all these different inputs. Uh, they can be turned on by all these different apps. Uh, I know that I sounded paranoid 10 years ago when I talked about it, but uh, intelligence agencies can remotely activate parts of it, so your microphone, et cetera, uh, your GPS. Uh, these are incredible telescreens that George Orwell couldn't have ever imagined. Um, but I feel like that's a bit of a different category because the, the creepy part about the telescreen in uh, 1984 was that the government mandated that they be in every home mm-hmm. and that people watch them. You have to you know, tune in under pain of re-education. Uh, God, be, part... re, be, be educated before you are re-educated. You know? <laughs> right. Pre-education. Pre-education. To avoid re-education. <laughs> no, I also, I love 1984. I, I remember I uh, pretended I was sick in summer camp and skipped out on a bunch of activities to read it all front to back and then read it immediately again front to back. Oh, wow. Because um, I don't know why 13-year-old me felt so connected with uh, a dystopian England, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Um, and no, where was this summer camp? <laughs> it was in upstate New York. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful place called Camp Dudley. But uh, anyway, but that's totally beside the point. So 1984 appropriately still creeps people out. Uh, but as far as government surveillance, that's what we want to talk about today. And, and obviously, if you're not aware, one of the reasons that Carla and I care so much about this, uh, well, I have that backwards. <laughs> Uh, Carla and I care so much about this, and one of the things that we've done about that is we're suing the city of Manchester to uh, seek injunctive relief from having surveillance cameras put up on Main Street, or Main Street, Elm Street, which is our Main Street, um, which in my brain is still Main Street for some reason. And is the (laughs) longest Main Street with two dead ends in America? The only one with two dead ends. Oh, wow. Yeah, most of the time it's like a road that goes through. To some other place, but not here. Not it here. Our in, main street dead ends in, in both directions. In a school. <laughs> anyway, it's great. Good for parades, unless you want to go across town. Um, but yeah, so this is sort of the main drag in Manchester. It's where City Hall is. It's where all the downtown restaurants and offices are. Uh, and the police department wants to put up... Uh, how many, it was three, three. three surveillance cameras? Mm-hmm. They, they already have a temporary one up on Mechanic Street, right? Yes. Uh, which I believe they took down uh, for, you know, before the lawsuit, they did it sort of preemptively. And, um, you know, if there's an injunction, then obviously they're not going to put it back up. Uh, but, yeah, they were looking to put up three of these very advanced surveillance cameras 
up on uh, Elm Street. And, when and, I say, and these are surveillance cameras. Right. I mean, these are not, as as their attorney said at the hearing, which we attended last week, you know, oh, these are just security cameras or these are just cameras. I mean, these are very sophisticated cameras, which is their specs say surveillance camera. They right. have 360 vision. They can zoom in. Well, right. And what that means is they're extremely high resolution. So the, imaging, the images that they take, they can... It's not like a snapshot, you know, on a. On it's a not one of those camera. grainy, you know, right. uh, 1980s. Cameras. Yeah. And and it's not your cell phone camera either. You know, most people have a pretty high quality cell phone camera, and these things are a level above that. Um, they can zoom in, you know, hundreds of yards. Uh, and night vision. Yeah, they have night vision. They can pick apart the images digitally uh, in a really advanced, sophisticated way. Uh, so it's really, it's not like having. A police officer with binoculars up in a crow's nest or something. This is an <laughs> Which entirely we also don't want before thing. anyone gets any ideas. Although I'd feel less bad about that for some reason. I mean, it's because of the it's the automated uh, sort of hoovering of data um, that leaves it. Eventually, I mean, I would imagine one of the one of the reasons I have a real problem with surveillance is eventually it will be that data will be processed by. Uh, you know, AI or algorithms that are used to predict crime or to, you know, seek out patterns of who's going where and that sort of thing. Um, and that's, I think, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively different than a police officer or somebody who's making those decisions with their own faculties um, because you can program in all kinds of, you know, unintentional biases and unintentional flaws into automated systems that, People, at least we have a governor that can tell us, like, wait a minute, maybe I'm, I'm doing this the wrong way. Um, whereas an AI or a, a, a sophisticated set of algorithms is going to barrel down uh, forever. <laughs> so. Right, right. And, and of course, yes, the technology can be abused. But, you know, this can be abused by humans as well. There's right. certainly, if you look online, let's take a city like London, right? Mm. Uh, London has a lot of surveillance cameras. New York City, where I used to live, and because one of the reasons I left was because this emerging sort of police state. Um, these, the surveillance is pervasive, but it's also, you know, I hear a lot where people say, "If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear." Have you heard this one? Uh. Yes, in the <laughs> 1940s. <laughs> right, so this is an actual, legit Nazi quote by Goebbels. And I see this in response to these cameras everywhere. People are quite comfortable in just saying, well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, which, of course, is the exact opposite of how this right. should work, right? So the way it's supposed to work is the government's supposed to be constrained. They're supposed to be open and accountable to us. The New Hampshire Constitution is very clear on this issue, and it says we'll be open and accountable at all times, right? Right. They keep secrets from us now all the time. I mean, we can yeah, talk about the, the Lori's list. list. <laughs> right. The p police officers who are too untrustworthy to testify, which, I mean, I, if, if that's the case, uh, how are you trustworthy enough to be a police officer if you can't be put on the stand in a court of law? But no, it, it's, it's really a, a, a problem of unequal uh, power. I mean, the, these, these things that the police in Manchester in particular have been doing um, – encrypting communications and putting up surveillance cameras, uh, all these sorts of things. It, it's uh, continuing encroachment of their ability to watch and uh, target 
people who may or may not be suspected of a crime. Well, that's the other thing, right? Let's talk about like that concept of pre-crime. Right. Um, so, you know, people will say, you know, if you have nothing to fear, you have nothing to hide, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, the next one people will say is, well, you know, you, let's talk about the nothing to hide for a second, right? Mm. So everyone basically commits at least three felonies a day now. Right. There's, you know, there's a smart professor out of Boston who, who wrote an entire book that says, you know, three felonies a day. You w- might not even know which of those they are, but I can assure you, because we are being over-criminalized, everything is right. against the law. Right, it's this Byzantine system of, of laws where you can violate it without having any idea that you've done something wrong. Right. Well, for example, one of the one of the uh, strange ones, it all has to do with, uh, uh, with banking. If you deposit $10,000 or more, you need to report it to, I think the, I, I forget which agency, it's the report to the SEC, you have to make a, a form with the bank. Um, so if you go and deposit ten grand, you have to do that. I think that's the number. But yes. if you deposit $2,000 five times, uh, and the government thinks that you intended to break up that deposit, it's called structuring. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you've committed a crime mm-hmm. because you didn't want to carry ten grand on you in your pocket. Right. Uh, and and or you're just like, well, I don't want to actually go through all the paperwork to fill it right. in because this is a pain in the ass. And actually, I'm a productive person in society and I have better things to do with my time than do red tape right. for so the government. Just, just one example of the kind of sort of in, in, uh, administrative law that can suddenly land you uh, a felony. Total aside, I'm reading a book on Russell Means, who was a Native American Indian uh, activist, and uh, they call red tape white tape. <laughs> okay interesting right he's an interesting dude I, he, he's an actor too right yeah i guess i mean i'm only halfway through the book so huh. i don't know the end story right now he's still an activist but you know was sort of involved in taking over alcatraz and yeah and certainly this book is much more about his personal story than the actual activism or maybe i haven't gotten to that part yet hmm. but yeah always a good read and i like to read about other people and see who's inspiring or what we can learn and you know what are random ways or new stories to sort of say, wow, you know, the state kind of has a track record of being not the nicest to people. Yeah. You know, well, and so I, would, I would guess that he's probably one of the, you know, illustrious club of people like Martin Luther King and uh, so on and so forth who were surveilled by the FBI and intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies. Um, which that's an almost entirely different topic, but the, the federal law enforcement uh, surveillance, and uh, maybe we could talk about that a bit later and, in the show. You know, and but. honestly, all of those things are, I believe, becoming so intertwined that, yes, while the case that we are petitioners in is very specific to our local activism here, which is, of course, why we're in New Hampshire, but all of those things are so interrelated now. Mm. I mean, you see it with with cases where you know they, they're all sharing information. There's there's huge sharing that's also happening across borders hmm. between allied countries. Oh, so right. like we're, there are all these yeah. packs between like <laughs> Australia America spies and on Americans, and then Australia hands the info they got spying on Americans over to the CIA or the NSA, and hey, we didn't spy Spun, on them; we just but, shared the information. Exactly, yeah. and and I mean you know so it's basically the Commonwealth countries and then i mean pine gap in australia there's a pretty good show uh currently on netflix uh called pine gap and i mean this is a a uh, surveillance place with satellites and all of that that they built and the maoris 
you know, religious mm. lens. So, you huh. know, that's another example where the government's just like, yeah, those treaties. Eh, I know we had a contract <laughs> with you, but you know what, honey? Yeah, we're just going to come and uh, take what we want. Well, and all that sort of ties back into, uh, we were talking about uh, that uh, concept of parallel construction a while ago. Um, but basically where they take information that's gathered illegally, use it uh, to further a case, and then just invent out of whole cloth a legal, reasonable way that they got to those conclusions, but it's not what they actually did. No, so they break the law, right? So they break the law in order to catch the guy. And, you know, and some people will say, well, that doesn't matter because if you, as long as well, you well, caught well, the guy, but it's like, no, would be like guys, we so have, it, you know, it, jurisprudence. It would be like an example would be, say, uh, maybe some, like a, a drug dealer or something um, has been making communications via SMS. And uh, the DEA, or t- they talked to, oh, sorry, that was weird, weird filler noise. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, the DEA. Uh, anyway, the DEA talks to their buddies at the NSA and says, man, you know, this guy, Joe Smith, he's definitely a drug dealer. Um, what's going on with those text messages? What's, who's he talking to on social media? And they figure out what he's going to do, and then they're there at the right time at the right place, incredibly. Um, and they bust him, and then at the trial, when they're explaining how they put together the evidence, what would happen is, instead of saying, we talked to our friends at the NSA who gave us this information, they would lie, and they would invent a new story. Right, so uh, so maybe, you know, they would say, oh, we, we just happened to something. on him, or our license right. plate scanner somehow magically, like, happened to pick up this one guy yeah or they or they would retroactively say that they had filed a search warrant for his phone communications or something because they know that they would find it right the, right so yeah. yeah um so anyway so the all of these technologies it is all interrelated and terrifyingly enough it's like this is pro- I, I, I would be surprised if there wasn't a case yet where uh intelligence from you know the great british intelligence agencies has been used to prosecute somebody in america uh, for a crime or so, you know, I, oh, I would be shocked I'm if, that was, if that had not happened. All of that is happening. Yeah. yeah, I mean, isn't that what happened to Trump with the Steele dossier? I no, mean, kind of, right? I don't know if that guy counts as an intelligence agency. <laughs> he was, wasn't he a D? Um, sort of like he got kicked out of MI one of the all these alphabets, right? So MI five, fifteen, sixteen. I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, yeah, I think he he used to work for them and then got um, kicked out, or I don't know. There's a technical term for it. And maybe it's like the CIA, where it's like, oh, there are no ex CIA agents. There's just right. We cannot that, confirm or deny. The there, there are people who work for the agency. There, and then there are people who you know commit suicide by <laughs> shooting themselves in the head twice. <laughs> well, I mean, all right. I feel like maybe we've gone a bit far afield <laughs> from the surveillance cameras in Manchester. So basically, <laughs> we had so we had this hearing last week. And, uh, you know, our, our, judge, our judge was Judge Naidu, who's the head of the uh, Superior Court here, mm-hmm. and she only sits in a Manchester once a month. So I thought that was kind of cool that she was there. I'd heard good things about her in the past. Mm-hmm. And then for our side, we had the ACLU of New Hampshire yeah. with Gilles Bissonnette and Henry in our corner. And then in the other corner, we had the city of Manchester with their, you know, very beige guy. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't catch his name. He seemed so exhausted and frustrated that he even had to talk about why they were allowed 
are not allowed to put up surveillance cameras. But also, I mean, I he mean, was so, just like, so, oh my god, guy, like everybody he, else does it, man. Yeah, wants, he was kind of like, on. he was like that, but he was also like, well, these cameras are ubiquitous. He didn't use that word because that's a big word. He said they're everywhere, and everyone has them. We have cameras on the stores. We have cameras in our phones. We have cameras everywhere, and it's right. like, yes, we do. But see how that's decentralized, and that's in the hands of the people, and we can choose how we use it. Right. It's an also, entirely. Is there, is there an unaccountable human being sitting in a control room that's looking like at watching, all those cameras? Watching, uh, watching, no, watching, watching. There's not. You know, exa- except for the guy at the NSA, maybe. But- you know, exactly. <laughs> and um, so he kind of started and opened his arguments with, you know, well, this is everywhere, so just get used to it, right? And then he did this really weird thing, which I was surprised that no one objected to. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I've watched too much, you know, lawyer television. But he was like, if Chief Capano was here, he would testify that blah blah And then if Chief Capano was here, he would testify. And I was like, well, first of all, Chief Capano yeah, is sitting right like there. right there. And second of all, isn't that like, like you? that's hearsay. You can't be like, oh, this person's going to tell you this. It's like, well, either because yeah. I don't think the chief would have put it quite in those terms, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I have very little input on how all that went down. Yeah, it but just, it was it was very interesting to be. You know, I've uh, I've tried to avoid courtrooms as much as possible. I want to be seems a, like a wise life choice. <laughs> plaintiff only, you know, if possible. Uh, but no, I mean, one thing that was kind of funny about the whole experience too. Um, you walk into the room and. It, it's very uh, church-like. It's like a chapel. There's there's a set of pews that people sit in, and then the celebrants can go through into the special gated area, and there's a big altar. And when the judge comes in, everybody has to stand, and then everybody gets back down and sits. Right, and, and they're, they're like, in robes. I mean, they don't have the funny wigs anymore, but, like, yeah, it's very it ritualistic. And I, don't, I, and I don't mean that. I'm not trying to make it sound ridiculous or say something that it's, like, funny because – No, it's like it's, the hallowed holes yeah, of justice. It's built into the know? system, and it's kind of neat in a way that that is – you can tell that the people that constructed that system, they wanted to make sure that it was, a, like, a, a space for truth. And that's a neat concept. I don't know. I it, it's funny. I in thinking about what I just said, I, somebody could hear that and be like, "Yeah, it's like going to church, man." Huh? But it's like, oh wow, like they really set it up as this sacred space for truth finding is the point of a court like that. But Which, you obviously, know, it doesn't feel that way when it's you know eight DUIs and somebody that stole a credit card. <laughs> right, and it's just it's it's. I think there's been such a perversion of what the legal system should be at this stage, and that's part of. I think our just general frustration and this sort of, you know, like anti-establishment vibe is just, you know, there's there's this perversion of the law. Like the law is supposed to be equal and come to some kind of fair outcome. But, you know, when we're at the stage where, you know, people are just being hurt for things that are nonviolent crimes, that are victimless crimes, and people just get caught up in this justice system. And then when we see bad guys doing bad things under the cloak and protected by the government for things that shouldn't be happening, you know, really, it, it, I think I get really mad about these issues because as a trained lawyer, like I have a deep respect for what it's supposed to be. And it's not like that anymore, and it irks me. It really annoys me that, you know, this thing that was supposed to work, and, Mm. you know, people say, oh, you're naive, 
but it just it it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And well, and also the whole point of laws it's supposed to be to remedy things that have been done wrong to somebody. Uh, but I mean, I think we talked a little bit about this on a previous show, but the it, it all comes out of English common law, which is built on torts, which is built on people suing each other over one thing after another because someone had done them wrong basically uh you know you're you know you killed my pig i have to take you to court what is that worth what do i get for that pig um and then over thousands of years it added up to this body of general knowledge about what to do when a bad thing happens more or less how do you adjudicate a dispute um so that you didn't have to hash it out every single time and that's how that's sort of where law comes from and since that's the nature of it, you know, it's not like Napoleonic law where it proclaims things. It's this law, it's a system that's built to address harm. And so when there are people that are being put through the system for harm to the state that is intangible, um, it becomes much more challenging. Well, and it's also, I think, <laughs> And that, much more warped. <laughs> well, that, and it's also, it's just, I think the codification has gone, like, way over the top in the sense that, you know, we write too many laws. So one mm. bad thing happens to one person, and now we need this very specific law to cover this very specific scenario. Well, and it's kind of like, you well, can, you know, right. maybe if we have, like, a million of those cases, maybe then we need a law for that, right? right? And, the, and the idea is that also that you can prevent certain types of things by having a, a law against them, which again, it's like, you know, how, how to put this. So I think you can, you can build a culture that's ber like based on a bunch of words that add up to sort of a magic that control the way that people behave. You know, it, it sets the, the boundaries for acceptable behavior, but you can never write a law. There's always going to be people that disregard those sort of implicit rules about. Oh, you mean you like uh, gun-free zones? Right, exactly. Brink? If so, if you're if you're a person that cares about your cultural inculcation in America, and you think you're supposed to obey the law because the law is the law, and that means that you're supposed to do what it says, then you will. Then then there would never be a shooting in a gun-free zone. But the problem is that people go outside of cultural norms, they go outside of legal norms, and they do bad things. So. In a roundabout way, the, the point of what I'm trying to say is that laws are supposed to address those people. They are There are these horrible, inevitable things that happen as a result of people being human beings in community with one another, uh, like murder and theft. And all you know, they've been around as long as there have been humans. Uh, and it's been a long journey of trying to figure out how to reduce and address those occurrences. Um, so, yeah, I think that you, you can't you can't prevent behavior. You can only... Uh, say but these we're going cameras to punish on you this way if 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 you uh, behave that way. But these cameras on Elm Street are not going to solve any of those problems. Although no. I did see a comment on Facebook where someone who is a sitting uh, alderman, I believe, or state sen uh, legislator, said. Um, having these cameras will save lives. And I'm like, Yeah, how? I have a hard time believing that. How? Because, I mean, yes, I do think it could probably help save uh, solve a crime, but it's not going to save lives. Like this, this we people have this absurd notion where they think if we just do X, Y, and Z, we'll somehow become Z is Afrikaans for Z. <laughs> in case everyone was wondering, not American English, not American English. <laughs> um, you know, we'll just have we'll we'll just be able to make the world safe. And I am here to tell you folks that one, the world is not such a dangerous place. But two, we can't actually 
the question becomes, what kind of future do we want to have? Right. Do people who are saying, hey, we just need these cameras now because, hey, they're saying there won't be, you know, uh, facial, we won't use facial recognition. All right, are you willing to put that in writing the way you put in writing in 2006 when they wrote the law that said right. this kind of surveillance will be prohibited, where the, the deputy commissioner of safety actually said you know these cameras would be he actually said um we would need special legislation in the future to legalize cameras being put up by police departments downtown to try and solve right. crime that is a literal quote from the legislative right. history from 2006 when they wrote this bill so yeah. just in case everyone's lost the one of the <laughs> arguments we're making in our case is there's this bill from 2006 that basically says highway surveillance is prohibited and it was a very narrow law because they wanted to be able to surveil the highways and put right. up cameras it was when at the they, toll it gates. It was when the uh, license plate reading technology was introduced, really for the first time. Basically, so it was it was all of a sudden they could you know uh, mass process everybody that drove by and see, ooh, that car's got a guy that owns it that has a warrant out for him, you know that kind of stuff. So Which is, it, it became very popular. I mean, in New York City, you can't get on the FDR or the West Side Highway without getting your license plate scanned. No, I mean it's just it's it's pervasive. Yeah. And here's the thing, guys. We're not New York. We're not London. Right. People who want to live that way, you can live there. But how about this? How about we just say New Hampshire is going to be this one place where we are unique, we are different, we believe in freedom, we believe in personal responsibility, we believe in like community-based stuff, and that we don't want, first of all, this like disconnect between the people who are supposed to ostensibly protect and serve us of course we know that's not all kinds of problems but that's the idea that's supposed to yes well but that's <laughs> not even their, their their mandate i mean the right. supreme court has said that police officers law enforcement does not have a duty to protect or serve okay yeah. but we'll put a pin in that so let's say that new hampshire is this unique place and they wrote this bill and they said, you know what, in 2006, if we wanted to have general surveillance, we would have to go back to the legislature and get permission. Right. So the ACLU said, we think that's our strongest argument. So in our pleadings, we say, hey, guys, these super fancy cameras of yours are definitely going to record motorists' faces and their license plates on Elm Street, the main street in Manchester. So you can't do that. You can't put up these cameras because you're breaking the law. Right. There's no way that you will fail to capture motorists and their identifying information. And they actually admitted that in their yeah. pleadings. They said, well, there will be inadvertent. It'll be incidental. Incidental. You know, and you it's know, like, it'll, well, just, it'll, it'll just happen. We'll just you know, break when the law I incidentally smoke a joint, <laughs> does anyone give me like leeway? Officer, I was only speeding incidentally. It, yeah. You know, just a little every now and then. Right. It's really just Ring. a part of driving. <laughs> but, uh, no, well, so, I mean, all right. And we were just talking about how this really shouldn't be a part of New Hampshire's culture. And I think it's kind of a, a really big, interesting question for me with all this stuff is what does this kind of change in technology do to culture? And I think that, uh, you know, there's this isn't the first time that governments have wanted to surveil people. This has a long history, uh, I mean, from – ancient Rome to now, I could talk more about it later if we have time, but we'll see. Uh, to, you know, to in Scooby-Doo movies where there's a person behind a painting where they poke the eyes out. <laughs> Classic surveillance technology. But, uh, 
No, so I, there, there was this idea, though, uh, that the utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham had um, called the panopticon. And I think it's really worth talking about because the, the idea behind it wasn't just to set up a system of control or a, a, new, a new type of prison or a new type of building or something. It was to modify people's behavior by making sure that uh, they felt that they were being watched. So, uh, and forgive me, I'm going to quote from Wikipedia because, hey, it's as good as the encyclopedia, which also has information that's out of date really quick. But this is, uh, there's not a whole a lot of new information about the Panopticon, uh, the book that Bentham wrote a long time ago. So um, basically it was a thought experiment. Uh, and the concept of the design is to allow all prisoners of an institution to be observed by a single security guard without the inmates being able to tell whether they are being watched. Um it's physically impossible for a single guard to observe all the inmate cells at once, but the fact that the inmates cannot know when they are being watched means that they are motivated to act as though they are being watched at all times. Uh, and in the context of surveillance on Elm Street, I mean, what does that mean for us if, if suddenly there's a new watchful eye in the sky? Um, in general, you know, it's sort of uh, just a fact that Watching something or uh, the, the the act of watching something changes the thing that you're watching. Um, if there's a, a couple that is on a date and you suddenly tell them that they're being watched, it's going to change their behavior. They're going to be self-conscious. They're going to be aware that they're being judged and surveilled. Um, so what does that mean for people on a large scale? You know, how does that change the the culture and society here in New Hampshire from people that are going about their day freely to people that are suddenly in a surveilled public space for uh, all this time. I mean, what do you think? I, I know that in uh, South Africa, there was a certain amount of surveillance uh, at I, different I mean, periods was, of history, but sure. And it was, I mean, it was more old school. It was still sort of right. spy craft. Well, and there was right? like CCTV. That was something that was, that was coming out and becoming big, even in the eighties the and early nineties, the idea that you finally could put a camera on every corner in an armored box, you know? Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it's creepy. I mean, watching people, I mean, voyeurism kind of has a, you know, negative connotation. This sort of idea of behavioral modification. So we don't like the way you are or we, 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 we're going to. So in a society, if people are telling you you're not free to mm. be who you are or if you have to start to modify your behavior, um, that's wrong. Well, I mean, if it makes you concerned about becoming noticeable. Number one, uh, you know, if you're if if you know everything's being watched, then acting quote unquote out of the ordinary doesn't just make you stand out in that crowd. It makes you stand out on this permanent record of people who existed in that space. Um, so there's an extra cost for behavior that might be out of the norm. So protesting, for example, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that it'll have a chilling effect on me. And maybe they're like, yeah, that's part of the reason we want those cameras is we don't want. How would the Boston know, the Tea Party have worked out if there were uh, surveillance cameras all around the harbor? Right. I and it's just, I mean, it's absurd to me that we're at that stage. You know, people talk about, you know, the Boston Tea Party. And I'm like, that was a very small percentage of tax. And people were pretty, pretty miffed about that and look where we are today where we are literally paying tax on rainwater you know and it's a dog licenses i mean if only it's people just... cared as much as they did about tea <laughs> <laughs> you know so so with the cameras yeah i think it is 
it is weird. I watched this documentary called We Live in Public mm. that um, had to do with this guy. It was, set, it was set in 1999. It was like right around, you know, the turn of Y2K. Mm. And it actually occurred to me the other day that I worked on a lot of Y2K stuff. I was still lawyering in California at that time. Okay. And you know how everyone has sort of like their aha moment for, or sometimes people have several, but that moment where you're like, Someone's lying to me, and I gotta like you know look into this, <laughs> this stuff a little seem more, right? right? Yeah. So I remember with Y2K, um, I was working at Logitech at the time, and my boss, the general counsel, was like, "Carla, you are on the task force for this," you know, and this was in maybe like late '98. Hmm. And when she told me about it, I actually thought it was a joke. Like they were like, "Oh, we think like the entire world's gonna end at the millennia when <laughs> like all the computers and clocks change from 1999 <laughs> to 2000." And I laughed because I was like, "That's no, dumb. No. Who thinks that?" And then I was like, <laughs> "Oh my goodness! There's this entire industry of conferences and lawyers and government, and it was the government and all these like fear mongers in the government who were like lobbying, you know. And there was all this continuing I mean, legal education." They did have to, like, people did have to do stuff to fix it, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't like not that to the much. extent that it was like, they like had to no, change it the clocks, I mean, right? It, yeah, th- like, no, the level of hysteria was just, I mean, it was, it was pitch. crazy, right? So this documentary, I mean, it's probably because all the money had just showed up in the tech bubble I, for the I first mean, time, you know, it, and it's like, oh, the computers. Not only did we lose all our money, but they're going to kill us all. I <laughs> mean, I think there was, and and certainly there's always hysteria. I mean, that's just the way. An appeal to authority works, right? So you have to get people uh, swept up and hysterical so that, I mean, we're seeing that in America right big now. Big round numbers are pretty scary. I mean, anytime there's it's turning over from 999 to 1,000, people are like, oh, it's going down. It's going to happen. I mean, so anyway, in this documentary, uh, We Live in Public, there was this dude, and he had made a lot of money in tech. And he decided he was going to take that money and do this artist experiment. So mm. he built these bunkers under, like, in a basement in New York City. It was actually under a courthouse. He had a firing range in there. They had guns that were going off. All there right. was a judge in New York City, 1999, who was like, can someone find out where that gun noise is coming from? <laughs> they sent <laughs> cops in. The cops took a look around. So anyway, they put these people in pods, and they put cameras on them 24-7 for 30 days. Mm. Unlimited booze, unlimited drugs, a bunch of like artsy crazy people. It was fascinating. I highly recommend, I don't want to spoil it for people, but if you're into documentaries, it was really interesting to see how fast people's behavior changed. So eventually they come and they shut down this particular one. So then he and his girlfriend go stay in their loft and they put in cameras. And this is sort of pre all the reality TV shows and all of that stuff, right? So he was like the first guy and the technology, you'll laugh. Like the cameras are, you know, half the size of the little pod bedrooms and, you know, the whole thing. And the way he and his girlfriend interact and how their relationship becomes toxic based on chats online. Mm. So people for the first time could watch you and tell you how they felt about watching you. They they became aware in real time how people were reacting to how they were acting. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it was really fascinating. Now, this was all private, right? So for me... 
That's the line. My own so, self-critical voice is bad enough, let alone I mean, can <laughs> thousands you imagine, of other ones right? in real I mean, time. I mean, at least this I, I can like – if people hate it, I can silo that until <laughs> a particular day of hate or something and then read all the comments. But like, Yeah, or, or, you know, or never read the comments. Right. Um, but yeah, just their behavior <laughs> changes. But for me, like the real danger here – and this is what Orwell talks about. This is what 1984 warns us about. This is what history teaches us. Mm. From, I mean, we're talking like this kind of surveillance stuff. I mean, the churches did it. The yeah. Spanish Inquisition did it. You, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you, you name it. There's If there's a government, uh, they're interested in what's going on in people's heads, whether that's uh, just as a way for them to show their power or as a way they think to enhance control. I mean, that was so this to, to go back to the whole Panopticon idea. Um, so the uh, Michel Foucault uh, wrote this book, Discipline and Punish, where he talks a little bit about uh, these ideas as sort of a social technology. Disclaimer, I, I found out that uh, <laughs> the book Ship of Fools is based on the idea that they would put these crazy people on boats and just let the boats go. And he used it as this whole metaphor about a bunch of postmodern stuff. And it turns out that there weren't ships of fools. Anyway, and I don't know if because of postmodernism, the fact that the metaphor exists means that it exists functionally and whatever, good enough. But regardless. Uh, <laughs> and I'm pulling book, all kinds of faces here, folks. <laughs> Anytime you talk about postmodernism, you need eight levels of meta commentary about what you just said. Or you but, could just say it's dumb and they're wrong. No, you need to overthink things, Carlo. You need no. to overthink them and then re-overthink them until you find out that thinking itself is an error. But, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, no, but so he he wrote about how uh, this this panopticon concept has been sort of embedded into culture and, uh, you know, the like religious cultures where people feel compelled to report crimes to one another or the uh, the Soviet culture, which was, you know, what 1984 was really all about. Um, where uh, children are turned into agents of the state to surveil their own families. And, I mean, um, that is really happening a little bit in America now. I mean, with the schools, right? The government runs schools and the, the... Well, and the medical establishment, too, that doctors are supposed to ask kids whether or not there are guns in the home and, you know, all these other things that they could then report to the authorities for whatever reason. Oh, my God. I went to the doctor once in New York City, right, where the, they're... You know, if you want to see, like, the police state on a different level, New York City is a good spot to go, right? If you want your bags being searched when you get on the subway, if you right. want a cop on every corner, if you want a camera on every corner. Ugh. Like, it's just, it's a little, you know, and it's become quite sterile. It's not a fun, funky place anymore. It's a very wealthy island that is very, very well controlled. And in Bloomberg's own words, you know, he has, what, the 10th biggest army in the world yeah, is right. NYPD, right? Not anymore. It's Bill de Blasio's giant army. Sorry, I can't get over how tall Bill de Blasio is. <laughs> is he very He's tall? He's crazy tall. Wow. He's like just a giant commie. <laughs> I, like in both his level of communistness and tallness. He's giant and a giant commie. Anyway, sorry. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot three plus ish. I like to, you know, it's like I'm six four, within right? within like just a grasp of six four. Yeah. But uh, Bill de Blasio is a human monster and I don't under, it freaks me out. Anyway, people that are taller than me freak me out is what I'm saying. So, <laughs> I, went to, so I went to the doctor in New York and I had an ear infection. 
And so, like, I couldn't really hear very well. But, you know, you're in a situation where you kind of know what the prompts are. So I'm playing along, right? Yeah. And the doctor, or the, maybe it was the doctor's assistant, the nurse or whatever, says, you know, she's got her clipboard and she goes, you know, do you have any? And I hear um, vitamins in your home. And I'm, like, <laughs> nodding. And I'm, like, yes, oh. <laughs> yes. And her face just, like, her eyes get really big. And she's just, like... <laughs> What? And, I use and from them every her, day. From her reaction, <laughs> I can tell whatever I've just said is wrong. And and I'm like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And she's like, do you have any violence in the home? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah! I love it. It keeps me healthy. <laughs> That's terrible. So, um, yeah, so I just think the cameras in general open a Pandora's box, right? So we know based on, you know, the fourth estate, the media actually starting to ask questions and saying, hey, you know, police chief, you know, you encrypt your stuff, you won't talk to the community, but what are you planning to do with these cameras? And they were like, well, we're not going to use facial recognition software. Okay. Right. How, how do we know that? Are we willing to commit to that? Is that a policy? Is that a law? Is we're just going to keep like the, the footage for law? X amount of time. And then if somebody does a 91A request, they can use facial recognition software. Or we can send it to our friends who will use facial recognition software. Right. But we will not use facial. You know, I mean, right. it's, or, come But on. we won't this year. But then we will next right. year. Knows, because yeah. something's going to happen. When and we then get it's going to be another excuse. So, the, so for me, this is very much feels like a moment, right? Like, I, I don't do these things and, and I don't stir the pot because I, I want to stir the pot. I do it because I'm genuinely passionate about the quality of life we have in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think is worth preserving. Like, it's not worth, you know, saying this doesn't matter because what because it does matter. Like, yeah. it, if we let this happen... It is one step closer to that sort of dystopian future. And people will look right. back and they'll say, well, how did that happen? And it'll be like, well, it's when we said, yes, you can put up cameras everywhere. Right, you just or slide you, into it. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing, too, is that I, when you set up like the infrastructure of oppression, even if it's not bad now – if it's bad in the future, they'll use it like that. That's the the stuff that I. I mean, and that's like a very abstract point. But well, and I, I it's also not I also abstract though. We had a lockdown in Manchester right. in 2016, where they locked down an entire neighborhood, thirty thousand people, and people were ordered back into their homes at gunpoint. I would like to repeat that because no one wants to talk about it. Right. The Manchester PD and other law enforcement, there were other people with other weird uniforms on the streets with rifles who ordered people back into their homes right. at gunpoint. That is not cool. That is not a free society. Right. Free people move freely. Free people are not surveilled. Right. It would be, I mean, and it's, again, it's one thing if there's active pursuit of a crime. It's another thing of, uh-oh, something went down. Everybody stay in your homes. I well, mean, that, that's something the went kinda, down, like, and they had already caught right, the guy, already, and then yeah. they had a lockdown for seven to nine hours afterwards. Yeah. And uh, and I want to be clear too. I mean, so this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Is that uh, all this stuff? It's very easy to, and I, I don't know. I, I'm only speaking for myself here. It's very easy to just be anti police like or to be perceived as anti-police because this is something that the police want to do and we're laughingly saying oh my god give you that power come on um but like and i know that there's a whole meme of like all cops are bastards that's like an anarchist thing and you know i i i i hear it because there's a lot of bad things that police officers do but 
ultimately like my, my goal with any of my activism isn't like F the police. It's that I want to try to move towards a society where people can actually trust and go to the police if they have a real problem and not expect all this corollary baggage that they can currently expect, you know, with the war on drugs and with a variety of other things. So, And actually with the cameras, I think this is a, it's a symptom, right? So when we moved from peace officers and the cop who was like, if you were drunk, you know, he would take your beer and drop you off at home and make sure right. your parents yelled at you. Or like he'll follow to, you as you drive to, slowly home. you know, home like so, locking yeah. up kids for speech. Um because people will no longer cooperate with the police, right? People are like, no, if you're asking questions, I'm not going to tell you. You know, I mean, certainly amongst um, gang activity, you see it a lot. Right. You know, people will say in, in um, some of the more inner city areas, police have a really hard time solving Even any crimes because yeah. no one will no one will snitch right? right snitches get stitches right and there's two sides to that it's because there's there's a criminal element that you will maybe get hurt or killed and then there's a police element of as soon as you're a snitch they're going to keep hitting you for more information right then you become and a ci the cl- and the then you're just, in, exactly. yeah and then you just you know you're, you're, part you're of damned if you do and you're damned if yeah. you don't and i think Maybe part of this move towards the surveillancing is they're saying, you know what, we aren't part of your community anymore. We right. are we're, just we're here set up a tower to, to, to watch to watch you because you know you are now the rats right. in the cage and swoop in to nab as necessary. No, and I mean I think that well, and again to, to go back to my earlier thing, like this is it's kind of personal for me too because my. So my grandfather was a police officer, and as far as I know, he was a good police officer. Like all I heard about, you know, it's him delivering babies and going and chasing down people that stole from other people. And uh, it's it's not uh, oh well, I looked for and smelled for drug use, or you know, an endless. Uh, I I drove around in my patrol car and pulled people over all the time, and when I could, I would search their car. So that I could try to get them, you know, a bigger infraction because that was the bread and butter. You know, I feel like the yeah, but uh, I mean that what what that was like fifty years right, ago this was when in, he was in Cleveland, I mean, I think it's changed yeah, a lot. So I mean, was, America was, was more free fifty yeah, years. This was ago. in Cleveland after World War II. So yeah, I mean, so when I think about him and he, his number one thing in life was like he wanted to help people, and when he retired, he became a locksmith, and he loved that he could go and help people get in their house or get in their, you know, it was like, that was just a part of what he did. That is true. Locksmiths, when you've locked yourself out, bring you joy. Man, they sure do. Talk about a job where everyone's happy to see you. But, <laughs> until they have to sign the credit card bill. But, uh, no, but like, so I, I have this weird vision of a society where people that want to help other people for a living and want to, uh, ameliorate the worst situations that people are in, uh, they're not going to have part of their job being dealing with someone's addiction problem, unless it's in the context of the committed a serious crime. You know, if they're, if they're attacking somebody, then they've committed a crime and you're going to be dealing with them. But like the, the, what's happening on Elm street is it's people that are homeless and people with addiction problems that aren't really committing crimes. I mean, they're, 
they're not shaking people down. You don't hear about people getting carjacked. You don't hear about people getting mugged in Manchester. I mean, there was a spate of uh, property crimes at some of the restaurants, like where junkies were breaking into the restaurants or at least like coming in the back door late at night when it was, uh, you know, skeleton staff and that kind of stuff. But I think, honestly, it was like one guy or two guys, and they actually caught both of them with CCTV from private from the restaurant, I'm sure. Restaurants. Because like, oh, that's and the guy. Those people worked and collaborated with the police, but once again, that information is decentralized. You don't have some like creepy dude. Do you know that there was a study that they looked at, like what information with the cameras, like what are they doing? And yeah. pretty much all it is is anyone who's surveilling someone else is like checking up on their friends, yep. their ex-lovers, their ex-wives, their ex-husbands. Like it's all creepy. Like Ugh. like basically. Basically, this opens up like one of those Pandora boxes where you're like, you're just staring down into like some kind of abyss. And it's just, it's murky well, and, and ugly and, and it's it brings putting, out the worst in people. Right. And it's putting law enforcement in a position where like, uh, they're, that's not what their job is supposed to be, you know? Like, that's not what they're supposed to be doing, (laughs) watching people on a camera. They're supposed to be helping people who are in need. And that's – surveillance does not help that. And that's the – and, again, the only reason that the police are involved with the, like, homeless and junkie problem is because of the war on drugs. And part of that means that they've outsourced all of those functions of society to police – and they've rolled in, uh, you know, treatment for drug addiction. Well, the treatment is step one. You got to go to jail because you, that's how you know you hit rock bottom and, and is you've been arrested and you now you've lost your freedom. Like, it's, And now it's, we anyway. know that doesn't actually <sighs> doesn't help. work. And it doesn't help when you take someone. You know, I hear this all the time where people will say, but the police are not equipped to deal with these people. And I'm like, so why do we keep hiring the same kind of law enforcement people why right, are giving we them more and more of this at, responsibility right and and asking them to do these jobs that they're clearly not equipped to do like you can't militarize the police and then you know wh- what's that saying about the hammer if you give uh, someone a hammer everyone starts to look like a nail yeah. right so if you give someone a yeah, bear cat and you give them the taser and you give them the surveillance right. cameras and you, give and you them have them go to, to a, a training into... where they learn the warrior cop mentality and they learn and that you know yeah the, this is a war on the streets for... and it's a real thing yeah. people if you want to like just horrify yourself go to youtube and look up like some uh, like law enforcement conferences co- where they like sell tasers or bear cats yeah. or like these and I videos think it's like are warrior, not warrior these, mindset you know, training yeah, was this thing in Minnesota where it was basically just that they teach you you know we're the thin blue line between the barbarians and chaos and civilization and like and if you're not in a uniform you might be one of the barbarians so always be prepared to do battle and it's that's just not uh, and maybe I'm wrong but like I, I don't know I well and I don't think that most police, I don't think most people that want to go and help people for a living, and maybe I'm, you know, I I hope that I'm right in this. I don't think people want to become police to be bullies. Like, people want to do it to help people. I mean, maybe some do do it because they want to be bullies. There's always people well, I think that positions of authority that do it because they well, want to be bullies. There's but. positions of authority. I think now we also have a prevalence of veterans being hired to right. police, which I have a lot of empathy for veterans because I'm genuinely like, I'm so anti-war. Mm. I just, you know, I, I, I marvel at what we've done, you know, over the 
centuries just why can, can we just stop killing yeah. each other like well, this that's whole actually, mentality it's, it's of actually there's a control is awful there's a kind of parallel there with you know our our army uh for a long time the and you, you hear this over and over again like soldiers are trained to go and kill stuff like that's their job is to go and kill people that are opposing our will in that space <laughs> and uh so when they're stuck with doing things like quote unquote nation building where it's like oh i joined the army and now it's my job to build schools in afghanistan like that's cool that there are people that get that skill set but you're applying a hammer to a phillips head screw you know it's like again the organization is not fit for that task right but I, i i mean and i would quibble i bet you those are actually like differently trained soldiers to some extent but there is a you know there there is a mentality where you have been trained that that is the enemy mm-hmm. i think in america with this sort of warrior cop mentality in our policing people are now trained to look at citizens as the enemy as right. you said but you know it's just it this can't be sustained and i think yeah. part of what happened with technology once like social media really took off and people could see how average people actually feel and you know luckily we still have the first amendment so people feel quite comfortable in saying how they feel right. too you know they people i th- i think there's this hysteria amongst that thin blue line mm. where they look at the rhetoric and they're like oh no the enemy is everywhere <laughs> right. and so they're like psyching well, themselves there was a whole, there up was a, to be scared there was like a war on cops uh narrative that was spreading last year if i remember correctly oh it's been spreading forever yeah, and, and right? it's just like uh the facts really don't bear that out but and again, like the so the point of all this stuff that I'm saying, and it probably sounds like I'm bending over backwards to defend police order, but the point is that the reason that I'm involved in this lawsuit, the reason that I care about these issues is that I would like there to be a society where police officers can help people and operate under just laws where they're not uh, imprisoning people for not harming anyone. But I mean, for that to happen, Brink, I mean, and this is a conversation that no one wants to have. The police force needs to cut its size in half. Right, be substantially smaller. If the war on drugs was ended, like 50 to 60% of police would need to be let go. And I would say of that 50% that are left, probably half of them need to be like social workers and stuff, right? And all of them should be doing yoga. So (laughs) Right. Well, and then the other, I mean, well, this is a this is sort of a tangent, but uh, thought experiment. It's 10 years from now. It's the distant future. <laughs> Cars drive themselves. Nobody's getting pulled over for speeding anymore. Cops don't do road enforcement. How many of them need to get fired? I, like, no, I mean, and, it's a, and parking uh, municipalities don't get parking revenue because cars go drop someone off and then drop go back to the house. Like... So there's going to be this revolution where police, like by necessity, either they're going to be like, oh, no, we need to keep doing what we're doing, but you need to give us way more money because right. we have and, no way of generating so revenue So in anymore. some ways, I wonder with all this surveillance stuff, if this is just sort of the tech move, right? So this is the move to, to be like, oh, wait, so we're going to need all this stuff so we can surveil everyone all the time. We're going right. to have like a lot of enforcement for every form of licensing. Like we are going to check. We're going to have aerial photos of your house. We're going to notice if you extended your shed. Maybe you built something on right. that you weren't supposed to. Maybe you put up a wall someplace where you didn't quite 
like get a permit that was going to cost you. I mean, I wouldn't you know, be surprised if that was like the new nickeling and diming of. I mean, I, I think that's where we're well, going, right? So, if they yeah. have to relinqu- relinquish control somewhere, if you're pushing the yeah. balloon, like either it's going to pop or like that's got to move right. somewhere. Well, that's so much revenue for for municipalities too. Like that's going to change everything. But I, so, and even when you think about it, like uh, if police, uh, if they cared about speeding then they would just put cameras up that read your speed and took a picture of your license plate if you were going over the speed limit. And oh, they do that, too. Well, that, I mean, sort of. But, I mean, that would be the exclusive enforcement if, like, the power of the traffic stop wasn't that you can pry further into that person's life and potentially get a bigger thing. Right. Which is all messed up, the idea that, like, the point of an interaction with a free human being in a free country would be that you hope to nab them on something. It should be that you're always hoping that there's nothing wrong. You know what I mean? Like the hope should be that everything is functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning. If you're a police, you know, like that. Well, would be, it's, I mean, uh, come it's on just all though. These like, up I, I'm someone, I, I got pulled over once in Hanover up at Dartmouth in uh, the Western Northwestern part of yeah. uh, New Hampshire. And Middle of nowhere. for, um, for rolling a stop. Okay. And it was like, it was a stop into a T that had a dead end, right? So I was turning so right. Nobody could... So, like, <laughs> no one could be coming from the other side, which is why I rolled it. Yeah. And then whoop, whoop. And this cop comes to the window and he's like, Do you know why I'm stopping you? And I'm like, No, I really have no idea. And he's like, You rolled that stop. And I was like, I Really? Okay. And I was like, there was literally no danger to anyone. Like, why? Why did that entire interaction happen? It's stupid. It's stupid. To remind you, don't do that. We're watching. And with cameras, they'll know. And I guess, you know, exactly, you know, and and maybe, you know, it does change our behavior. But I don't think our behavior should be changed. Like, if we are a free society, Edward Snowden said it really well. um, You know, he talks about privacy as sort of the sense of self. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, you are allowed to reveal to people as much and as little as you want, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that idea because I remember we were up in Lebanon, New Hampshire for a tour protest, right? When they wanted to close down the library's tour node, right? So this is, you know, uh, the onion ring. Is that what it's called? The onion Network? Router. router. Wait, router. Yep. <laughs> it has lots of layers. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so these kids um, came and, and we did sort of a big brother, you know, we had big brother signs and everything. And, and these, this little crew, probably eight of them, and they're 10, 11, 12 year old kids, mixed boys, girls. And they were like, what are you protesting? I want to hold a sign. Yeah. And I felt very strongly that they shouldn't hold signs unless they understood what the issue was. That makes sense. And so I was like, look, before you can hold the sign, I want you to understand. So there's this thing. The government says they can surveil your stuff. They're doing it illegally. There was this guy, Edward Snowden, and they'd heard of him and everything. And they said, oh, but we don't care because the, they only check your computer meaning like your laptop or like a oh, desktop. they didn't think it was on your phone they didn't think it was on your phone That's and when i too, told kiddos. them oh no they can read your phone they were like what they can read your phone <laughs> give me a sign oh man well and that's what and with so much like so many imbalanced power relationships that's the problem is that it hurts the person that's being pressed or oppressed and wow it's uh <laughs> It hurts the person that's being oppressed, and it also hurts the person that's doing the oppressing, you know? Uh, Like, it makes people act more paranoid, 
and paranoia is just like extreme pattern finding. You're looking out for ways to know that you're being observed. And then it makes the observer more paranoid because they think all oh, these people know that I'm watching. Is that guy acting normal to get out of my watchful view? And they instinctively you know? <laughs> know that there's something wrong with surveillance because why are they hiding right. everything from us? Well, and it's like the, the idea, you know, you can get pulled over for driving the speed limit, but a little under because it's suspicious that you're obeying the law. And if you do, <laughs> right. damned if you don't. So it becomes very sort of Kafkaesque. And I, I really, you know, that's just not what I want for New Hampshire. That's not what I want this state to be New like. New Hampshire is unique. We have a constitutional amendment which passed last no, fall, you know, last November, uh, that is now part of the New Hampshire Constitution that 81% of Granite Staters, so there are only 19% who are statists, and there are 81% of us who understand that we want less government intrusion in our lives. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that that's what the people want, and that's what we want. So. I think that's kind of all we have for today. So thank you so much for listening and uh, tune in next time for a told you so. Peace out. Bye.